0: And the demons of hell came out and spoiled that for 50 years. Now, wow. I see those people uh, re emerging. I hear the same tunes, and it scares me. It
1: scares me too. Demons of hell. Straight ahead on the broadcast. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Another cheery
2: show. I got the feeling that something right. Oh, is. I'm too scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I get down the
1: stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the
2: right. Here I am, stuck Uh-oh. in the middle with you. Here I am.
1: From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California. On KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ. Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF, where I hear it's very cold up there today. Also stream, streaming coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. It has been a, uh, a very rough week uh, over the past week or so commemorating the one-year anniversary of the deadly Donald Trump incited January 6, 2021 attack on American democracy. So, uh, before we uh, pick up somewhat from there and begin to look forward with my guest momentarily, I'm sure that'll be uh, much more fun. Am I right, Desi Doyne? God, I hope so. It will only include a few demons from hell.
2: Yeah, just a few.
1: Everything will be fine. Uh, But before we get there, uh, a bit of what uh, will definitely suffice, I think, anyway, for some good-ish News: uh, Three white men convicted of murder for chasing and killing um, uh, Ahmad Arbery, the 25-year-old black man committing the crime of jogging through their neighborhood in February of 2020. Those three men were sentenced to life in prison on Friday, with a judge denying any chance of parole for the father and son who armed themselves and initiated the deadly pursuit of Arbery. Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley ordered Greg and Travis McMichael to serve life without parole for Arbery's fatal shooting and granted their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, a chance to earn parole, but only after serving at least 30 years in prison. The judge said before the sentencing, Ahmed Arbery was hunted down and shot and he was killed because individuals here in the courtroom took the law into their own hands. Judge Walmsley said Arbury left his home for a jog and ended up running for his life for five minutes as the men chased him in their trucks until they finally cornered him. Murder carries a mandatory sentence of life in prison under Georgia law, unless prosecutors seek the death penalty, which they opted against in this case, which I am, of course, very okay with and, in truth, much prefer. The main decision for Judge Walmsley was whether to grant an eventual chance to earn parole for two of the murderers he chose not to. And for one, he did, though only after 30 years in prison. And that one is currently 52 years old. So. It could well be uh, life in prison for him as well. During the sentencing hearing, Arbery's family had asked the judge to show no lenience. The guilty verdicts against the men handed down the uh, day before Thanksgiving prompted a victory celebration outside the Glynn County Courthouse in Georgia for those who saw Arbery's death as part of a larger national reckoning on racial justice. The McMichaels had grabbed guns, jumped in a pickup truck to chase Arbery after spotting him running in their neighborhood on uh, on February 23rd of 2020. Brian joined the pursuit in his own truck and recorded cell phone video of Travis McMichael firing close-range shotgun blasts into Arbery as he threw punches and grabbed for the weapon. The killing went largely unnoticed until two months later, when the graphic video, apparently it always requires video these days, When the at least when the killing of a person of color is involved. And even that doesn't always do the trick. But when the graphic video was leaked online, it touched off a national outcry. The Georgia Bureau of Investigations took over the case from the local police and soon arrested all three men. Uh, their attorneys have said they plan to appeal the conviction uh, either way, next month, the McMichaels and Brian will face a second trial, this time in U.S. District Court on federal hate crime charges. A judge has set jury selection to begin in February. Prosecutors will argue that the three men violated Arbery's civil rights and targeted him because he was black. So, some good news there, even if it uh, surrounds one of too many tragedies these days. Yes, uh, and while I, I, I'm going to need to get to my guest here shortly, uh, as well as, by the way, our uh, Desi Doyen with our latest Green News report a little bit later, which we had sort of had to push back yesterday to accommodate our special coverage of the first anniversary of Trump's deadly January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. So I'll just mention very quickly this other goodish news for now. The Cyber Ninjas. Remember them? Oh, yes. The, uh, Hard win- to forget. <laughs> The wingnut conspiracy group of supposed computer security experts, though decidedly not election experts, they were hired by the GOP-controlled Arizona State Senate to carry out that phony post-election so-called forensic audit of the 2020 election uh, presidential election in Maricopa County, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Reportedly, the Cyber Ninjas are no more. They have shut down entirely following a ruling from a state court this week that they will be fined $50,000 a day until they turn over all of the documents that the court has mandated they turn over because they are public documents. Uh, According to a lawsuit filed by the Arizona Republic newspaper, uh, they sued for those documents. The judge says, yes, those are public documents because the ninjas were being paid with state taxpayer funds for their pretend audit. Now, what shutting down the company actually means for those fines that are stacking up now every day and uh, what else we have learned about that phony audit this week? Well, that's going to have to wait for another day because it's too detailed for me to get into for the moment. Suffice to say what we have been telling you and explaining to you on this program for the past year in great detail about that so-called pretend audit, that audit theater Well, we have been telling you that it was a fraud and a 100% scam. And yes, yet again, that was confirmed to be true this week in Maricopa County, Arizona. We'll try to get to that in the days ahead. And finally, before we take a break and come back with our guests, one more point that I wanted to make sure you heard about uh, that I had to delay during yesterday's uh, broadcast special coverage. But this week in a New York Times essay headlined, I Fear for Our Democracy. Jimmy Carter, the 39th president of the United States and longtime champion of democracy, wrote, uh, One year ago, a violent mob guided by unscrupulous politicians stormed the Capitol and almost succeeded in preventing the Democratic transfer of power. All four of us former presidents, that would be Carter, uh, Republican George W. Bush, and Democrats Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, condemned their actions. There followed a brief hope that the insurrection would shock the nation into addressing the toxic polarization that threatens our democracy. However, one year on, writes Carter, promoters of the lie that the election was stolen have taken over one political party and stoked distrust in our electoral systems. These forces exert power and influence through relentless disinformation, which continues to turn Americans against Americans. Politicians in my home state of Georgia, writes the president, former president, as well as in others like Texas and Florida, have leveraged that distrust that they have created to enact laws that empower partisan legislatures to intervene in election processes. They seek to win by any means and Many Americans are being persuaded to think and act likewise, threatening to collapse the foundations of our security and democracy with breathtaking speed. Jimmy Carter writes, I now fear that what we have fought so hard to achieve globally, the right to free fair elections unhindered by strongman politicians who seek seek nothing more than to grow their own power, has become dangerously fragile at home. The 97-year-old former president notes, of course, that he has spent decades since his presidency working to promote free, fair and orderly elections across the globe via his Carter Center in Atlanta. And explains the quote, for American democracy to endure, we must demand that our leaders and candidates uphold the ideals of freedom and adhere to high standards of conduct before he then goes on to detail ways to reach those higher standards, including electoral and voting rights reform in Congress, which perhaps we will discuss as well in the days ahead. As Carter writes, quote, our great nation now teeters on the brink of a widening abyss. It is on the precipice of that widening abyss that we pick things up today and try anyway to look forward With my next guest, who spent months before the 2020 election with a bipartisan group of experts, security experts and so forth, trying to game out the worst case scenarios for what might happen if Donald Trump refused to accept the results. Well, what that group learned and warned about and what we can all do to try and help avoid an even worst case scenario between now and 2024 that's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: Trouble, oh trouble, can't you see? You're eating my heart away and there's nothing much left of me.
1: No kidding, ain't it the truth. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last month on uh, Christian Amanpour's program on CNN discussing the spate of voter suppression and election subversion legislation that is being adopted at the state and local level around the country following Donald Trump's loss in the 2020 election, Amanpour interviewed 86-year-old Republican Charles Fried. Or freed, I'm not sure. Uh, He served as Ronald Reagan's solicitor general before the U.S. Supreme Court. He cited political partisan gerrymandering as one of the central issues that has resulted now in our current, ongoing, arguably worsening dysfunction. But as you'll hear, his remarks turned somewhat broader and, in fact, more frightening, tied to his own personal perspective based on where he was born
0: believe it or not, it's related to gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is something which the Supreme Court has said, that's okay, we can't do anything about that. That is why you have state legislatures doing things which a majority of their voters don't want done, but a minority is gerrymandered into power and the supreme court should have put an end to it and it didn't and it didn't because those legislators are all republicans they would be voted out they would not be uh, in control of state after state after state because they've got unfair voting systems Mm -hmm. and the supreme court says Not our department. Well, if it isn't their department to protect democracy, I don't know what is. And if democracy were protected, first of all, you wouldn't have the justices you have on the court now because that was a sham. What Mitch McConnell did uh, to, uh, uh, to Merrick Garland and you wouldn't have uh, the legislatures that you have. And I think you wouldn't have the danger of a reappearance of Donald Trump.
1: Wow. Well, it, you know, it, it's, you say a... I
0: have a long perspective. Yeah. I do have a long perspective because I was born in Prague in 1935. Czechoslovakia wow. was a real democracy. And the demons of hell came out and spoiled that for 50 years. Now, I see those people uh, reemerging. I hear the same tunes, and it scares me.
1: Yeah scares me, too. That was Ronald Reagan's Republican Supreme Court Solicitor General Charles Freed, or Charles Fried. In case you need a reminder of just how far off the rails the GOP has gone over the past 40 plus years from where they once were, which, by the way, was already pretty far right at the time. Let's not sugarcoat it or offer too much of a hagiography here for the days of Ronald Reagan. But on a very related note to those demons of hell that he references there, writing at year's end at the L.A. Times, Dr. Nils Gilman of the Berggruen Institution wrote, For those of us who care about protecting democracy, 2021 has at times resembled the sort of nightmare where you see a friend standing on a train track, but your screams about the looming danger can't be heard. Oh, my God, is Nils Gilman now monitoring my dreams? The uh, runaway train of illiberalism continues to bear down on American democracy, he writes, and the need to act could not be more urgent. In truth, he writes in the op-ed, this nation avoided the worst that many anticipated might happen during and after the 2020 presidential election. Notwithstanding the big lie promoted by former President Trump and his cronies, the election, in fact, went off properly and the candidates who received the most votes were allowed to assume their offices. However, what the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th showed and which subsequent congressional investigations have made even clearer is that Trump and his minions were very much willing to try to steal the election. Now, as listeners know, I will go somewhat farther here than uh, Gilman to say that they weren't just willing to try, they absolutely did try. They tried over and over again to steal the election in myriad ways, concluding with their final, desperate, pathetic, and deadly attempt in hurling their supporters against the gears of the U.S. Congress to try and prevent the final certification of Joe Biden's victory. Against the gears of the very U.S. Constitution itself. But At least in uh, 2020, the uh, Republican Party simply wasn't fully prepared, it seems, or at least wasn't organized enough yet to pull it all off. As Gilman suggests in his op-ed, that story is likely to look very different in 2024, at least if we remain on our current trajectory. Despite Trump's failure in 2020, uh, 2020, Gilman writes, the right-wing anti-democratic forces are still at it. Over the past year, Republicans in state legislatures crafted various measures to make it easier to pull off what they tried to do in the 2020 election. The GOP's anti-democratic strategy has several dimensions, he notes. First, gerrymander so aggressively that they can win majorities of seats with minorities of votes. Second, Make it harder for Democratic constituencies to vote. Third, if all else fails and Democrats somehow still manage to get more votes, nullify the votes themselves. And fourth, purge any Republicans critical of anti-democratic political strategies. All of this adds up to a Republican party, he notes, that has made a complete turn toward what in other countries such as Viktor Orban's Hungary or Erdogan's Turkey, is known as illiberal democracy. Or perhaps what Charles Fried might have described as demons of hell. Despite ample evidence of how this has happened in other countries and of the explicitly stated intentions of Trumpist Republicans in the U.S., Gilman writes, Americans continue to stand on the railroad tracks, their backs turned to the impending danger. The primary imperative then is for all citizens to take seriously the danger of election nullification achieved through various means. But what does that mean exactly? And how can an average citizen, even if they do take the danger seriously, do anything to stop it as we move forward? Joining us now is Dr. Nils Gilman. Dr. Gilman is an historian, vice president of programs at the Berggruen Institute, a nonpartisan independent think tank based here in Los Angeles aimed at reshaping political and social institutions in the face of the many great political and societal transformations of the 21st century. He's also the co-founder of the Transition Integrity Project, which during the summer of 2020, you may recall, in the lead up to that year's election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, uh, they had organized a bipartisan group of experts to specifically game out what a contested November election might look like and how it might play out and how best the nation could respond and defend itself from various worst-case scenarios. Dr. Gilman, Happy New Year, sir, and welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks for having me on, Brad. Uh, Before I get to your disturbing uh, L.A. Times piece, Nils, I I, want to sort of follow up on a couple of points from our last conversation, which seems like a thousand years ago. Uh, It was a week or so after Election Day in November of 2020. And uh, earlier that summer, in the lead-up to the election, uh, as as you guys were gaming out what could happen in the Transition Integrity Project, uh, you cautioned, quote, the two biggest dangers that the scenario process uncovered were the possibility that a false fraud narrative could take hold or violence in the streets could escalate. Well, I don't want to say you nailed it, Nils, but uh, it, it seems like you kind of nailed it, at least when it comes to both the false fraud narrative and the violence, if not necessarily in the streets per se, but at least at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, the last time we spoke was actually, as I say, a week or two after the election itself in November, but before January 6th. Was that attack on the Capitol to stop the certification of the results, was that something specifically that the Transition Integrity Project had actually gamed out when you were trying to prepare for some of the Potential worst-case scenarios in the uh, November 2020 election?
3: Yeah, we did, as a matter of fact, uh, anticipate that there might be problems on January 6th. I mean, we didn't anticipate that there would specifically be a march from the White House down Pennsylvania Avenue and an assault on the on the Capitol, but mm-hmm. we didn't know that January 6th, as the date when the vote certification is supposed to take place, was a moment of constitutional stress that you know bad actors could potentially exploit. And we said that. We said specifically that you know there needed to be preparations on the part of uh, you know law enforcement to be ready for that possibility, mm-hmm. and I think there was some preparation for that. Um, you know, we still don't know exactly what the National Guard was instructed to do or not do mm-hmm. um, with respect to the Capitol, and I think the investigations that are ongoing may eventually get us some clarity about that. But certainly, there were a lot of people who were very worried uh, in the run-up to January 6th, that there could be, um, you know, uh, a serious kind of violent incident. And that's, mm. of course, what ended up happening.
1: Yeah. And I suspect if, if you guys reconvene before the next presidential election, uh, I'm guessing a lot more attention will be paid to that, uh, January 6th date next time. Also, uh, looking back at my notes from, uh, last time we spoke, uh, again, mid-November, 2020, you also argued, um, Before the election, that if Biden succeeded in taking office, one of the immediate questions would be if, quote, the incoming Department of Justice would pursue criminal charges for any wrongdoing they may find or challenge pardons that Trump may issue to himself or others on his way out the door. Well, neither uh, the DOJ or Biden appear anyway to have questioned uh, any of those clearly corrupt pardons on the way out the door, but... Uh, I'm I'm curious, what what is your take on the DOJ and and Attorney General Merrick Garland's pursuit of criminal charges for wrongdoing by the previous administration uh, one year after Biden's uh, taken office?
3: Well, you know, the uh, Attorney General Garland um, and the Department of Justice has definitely, um, you know, done a number of prosecutions related to the events of January 6th. And there's 700 or so people so far who have been charged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Attorney General Garland was just on TV saying that there are going to be further charges coming down the pike. Um, you know, there may be charges that go against the actual administration. So far, the only people who have been charged are people who were, you know, sort of the the, the shock troops on mm-hmm. the ground that were actually inside the Capitol building. Yeah. And we still don't know how much that that was spontaneous action and how much of it may have been planned. And if so far as it was planned, how much members of the trump administration may have been involved in that planning process we we just don't know and that's really what the committee should be doing it's also what the department of justice should be doing um, and what we do know is that there's been you know here we are a year out uh, garland has been in place for 11 and a half months and we haven't seen any indictments uh, for any of the you know facial wrongdoing that members of the previous administration engaged in
1: yeah, I mean it's it's troubling, and and there's sort of a split between a lot of uh, folks, uh, sources who I who I respect, um, you know, some who in fact are calling for Merrick Garland to step down because he hasn't done enough, hasn't you know put in place sort of a task force to look not just only at January 6th, but all of the other. Trump administration crimes that are sort of uh, being obscured in, in one sense by, uh, by January 6th. And then there are others fo- uh, folks who we speak to who say, well, he's working uh, from the, the ground up, doing exactly what he should. Garland, you know, working his way towards the bigger fish and so forth. So I, I was just sort of curious where you felt, where the Berggruen Institute felt when it comes to, uh, you know, accountability for what we saw over the past four years.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've been saying for a number of years that we need to hold elites accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the op-ed that you were you were kindly reading from that appeared in the LA Times last week, most of the stuff that I said there were things that, you know, an ordinary reader could potentially do something about. You know, mm-hmm. they could, you know, people can go out and become poll workers. We have an uh, undersupply of poll workers or go, you know, run as uh, you know, a local election uh Election administrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are thousands of positions all over the country. Our, our, you know, our election system is currently totally decentralized, and there's local administrators have a lot of power. And we need people who are committed to the democratic, small D democratic process to be in those positions, not people who are, you know, committed to, you know, partisan victory at, mm-hmm. at any and all costs. And so I think that there are some things that ordinary citizens can do, but the truth is that, you know, actually the real problem is we need to have elites who are going to be Committed to democratic practice. Um, and what we have in this country now, and I, what we're seeing this very much in the current Congress, is you see a split between some elites who are basically complicit with the crimes of the previous administration and then others who are complacent about the likelihood that this could come back. Mm. And we need elites to behave more, take this problem more seriously, um, and really take on the challenge of, you know, illiberalism um and the anti-democratic tendencies mm-hmm. that are becoming more and more legion in this country particularly on the right.
1: And that sort of, uh, well, well, that nicely uh, brings us to that uh, L.A. Times top, uh, op-ed. Uh, uh, what, what is? And I think this is important. Uh, what is, as you describe it, because we may be hearing this phrase more frequently in the future, unfortunately. You referenced it a bit there. But what exactly is what you describe as an illiberal democracy?
3: Yeah, so the term illiberal democracy is actually a term that the current president of Hungary, Viktor Orban, Himself coined uh, to dist- to distinguish the kind of democracy he believes in from the kind of democracies that have long been the hallmark of what we call Western democracies or Western European North American democracies, which were liberal democracies. Mm-hmm. Liberal democracies, and I mean liberal as a small l, mm-hmm. not you know, uh, are ones that believe that um, you know we should have free speech, uh, that everybody should get a chance to vote, that every vote should be counted that the candidate with the most votes should take office, um, and that, you know, the pursuit of an open society is the end goal of a democratic practice, and that an an open society, meaning that people can speak freely and express themselves openly, will be one that therefore produces the best political results because the majority opinions will be expressed through the political process, Mm -hmm. and then those politicians will enact... Laws and policies that reflect the will of the people. Uh, An illiberal democracy rejects those premises of small L liberalism. Says we don't necessarily need free speech for everybody. There are some people whose speech we don't believe should be made free because they represent culturally threatening things to us. So mm. people who are, you know, in the case of Viktor Orban or in some illiberal sectors in the United States, they don't think that you know we should have a. Uh, if, if the majority of Americans believe we should have you know that immig- immigrants should be treated nicely mm-hmm. that's not something that should be necessarily respected because the values of the country as they construe them precede mm-hmm. the political process of majoritarian democracy and so if there are attitudes that are that are culturally conservative according to their values those things need to be promoted ahead of the democratic practice of majoritarian you know le- uh-huh. legislation and rule and so you see a number of countries where strong men who have come to office via the ballot box, uh, then use the affordances of the presidencies or the executive branch to entrench the position of their party, even in the face of majority opposition to them. So you've seen this in people like Bolsonaro uh, Bolsonaro Mm -hmm. in Brazil, or um, President Erdogan in Turkey, or Duterte in uh, the Philippines, uh, or Kaczynski in Poland, so all over the world in Asia, South America, Europe, you're seeing the rise of this kind of illiberal um, democracy, where mm. you have you still have elections, but the electoral process is so corrupted that it basically ensures that you will get right or far right victories under any and all circumstances.
1: And, you know, as you're talking there, I can't. And, and as you're just dis- explaining what's going on in these other countries uh, and you talk about, you know, the minority rule, uh, it's sort of, you know, democracy in name only in one sense. Uh, but as you're talking about these other countries, it sure sounds a whole hell of a lot like what we are looking at here now, as Charles Fried was uh, you know, referencing uh, thanks to gerrymandering and so forth. And, of course, I also, um, Victor Orban of, of Hungary, uh, who coined that phrase, that would be the same Victor Orban of Hungary whose uh, re-election Donald Trump just endorsed, I believe, this week?
3: That's right. That's right. So, <laughs> so in fact, there was a big conference uh, that a bunch of American right-wing media, I think led by Tucker Carlson, just had a big thing in, in, in mm-hmm. Budapest, which is the capital of Hungary, um, celebrating the kind of democratic practice that uh that Orbán has institutionalized and mm-hmm. I think it's worth diving into the case of Hungary just a little bit partly because it's being celebrated in right-wing American media yep. as a kind of um, uh as a model that American America might want to follow right I mean mm-hmm. you have a situation where uh in Hungary they speak the language the national language is Hungarian it's a very difficult language it's totally different from other European languages Hungarians, because their language, their native language is so difficult, they speak very few foreign languages. Mm-hmm. They don't have a lot of access to any outside media. So they live very much in a media bubble, a Hungarian media bubble. Mm. That Hungarian media bubble has then furthermore been basically controlled by Orban and his rich buddies who have bought out uh, opposition media companies um, and often used the threat of, legis- of legal action against opposition. Uh, opposition candidates and opposition newspapers mm-hmm. and media outlets by saying we're going to do things uh, to you legally that'll make your life very difficult unless you sell uh, to a right wing uh, to a right wing outlet. So uh, incrementally over the last uh, ten years, the media ecosystem of Hungary has become almost entirely dominated by right wing affiliates of Viktor Orban, um, and so they've created a totally tight media bubble where people have no idea really about anything but what the media that's not controlled by the government in a a direct sense. and It's not wholly owned. It's not the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, But it is entirely controlled by people who are in bed with the national government. And why are they in bed with him? Because ultimately what Orban does is he allows the government to promote policies that support what his rich buddies want mm-hmm. at a financial level. So there is this ultimate sort of financial motive underlying it, but they're using the process of promoting right-wing values and ideologies as cover for, you know, the, covering for the interests of the rich right-wing guys who support mm. Orban's government. So that, that confluence of sort of cultural right-wing anti-democratic politics with basically support for plutocratic interests is really something that's gone very far in Hungary, and you can see why for a certain constituency in the United States that might be a similar coalition to what, you know, the post Trump Republican Party looks like, where the ultimate interests of the party, you know, from a financial perspective, mm-hmm. end up supporting people like the Koch brothers mm-hmm. or Sheldon Adelson or the Mercers. You know, that's, you know, tax cuts for rich people. That was the only actual policy initiative that Trump got through. Right, That was great mm-hmm. for the rich people, and then they throw a lot of cultural red meat to the base uh, while trying to shut down or to intimidate media sources that are criticizing,
1: them. and 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 it's not difficult to see how that could happen. Even if you just you know look back over the past few weeks, when there, uh, you know, when the news broke that the January 6th House Select Committee was was subpoenaing uh, communications companies, phone companies, and so forth for records, and you actually had a whole bunch of folks on the right saying, uh, "Don't do it. Don't turn over those records. If you do, you will be sorry." Once we are back in power. That's right. And that feels very similar to this, that same kind of of, of of government intimidation, you know, if not outright taking over a company, but, you know, sending the messages, hey, you better, uh, you know, uh, keep in mind our political agenda or else. So, uh, Nils Gilman, what to do about it? You write uh, that short of getting federal voting rights and election security bills to the president's desk, immediately as are clearly needed at this point which but that requires the need to reform the filibuster which Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are still preventing but you say that the work at the state and local level is perhaps even more important how so
3: well you know when we did the transition integrity project uh, a year and a half ago in 2019 and 2020 the concern we had then was of course that we had a president in the white house who we know didn't respect any of the sort of standard Democratic norms, and we had a party supporting him that was not likely to restrain him insofar as he tried to overturn things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's, of course, what we ended up seeing happening uh, on January 6th and really uh, the whole time between election day and inauguration day is that a large majority of the Republican Party, uh, there were only 10 people in the House who uh you know, voted to impeach him after the January 6th. Ten Republicans, I should say, that voted to Mm -hmm. impeach him. And so you really had a situation where one party was basically willing to go along with non-democratic norms. Now we have a different situation now. We don't have that kind of a problem at the federal level. We don't have a president who's not going to respect an election if he loses. But the Republicans also don't control that level of government anymore. And so they're pursuing their angle really now at the state and local level. Um, And you know rat, the way that they can try to do this is by, you know, getting state legislators to uh, potentially overturn the, pop, the result of popular votes. I mean, you know, there's some constitutional ambiguity that goes back to the 18th century about, you know, who actually has the right to appoint electors, right? Yeah, so yeah. if, um, you know, if there is in 2024, let's say North Carolina returns a very close victory to the Democratic candidate, and the Republican-controlled state legislature just said, okay, well, we're not going to respect the vote. We're just going to send a slate of Republican electors in anyways. Nothing like this has really ever successfully happened in the United States. There was a little bit something like that that happened in the 1876 election. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, you know, in 99% of all elections that have taken place in this country, whoever got the most votes the state legislature certified the electors for that person mm-hmm. and gave them uh you know even even when it was against you know the majority opinion of the state legislature uh that is no longer necessarily the case i mean the republicans are trying to put into place election officials and uh state legislators who are pretty much committed to the idea that there's no way that democrats could win elections in their states without committing fraud and therefore if it appears that the democrats Won the majority of the vote, that on its face must mean that fraud must have taken place, and therefore they're in the right to disrespect the votes, the results of the vote, mm-hmm. and instead to install a slate of electors of their own. So they're planning ahead for 2024, and basically in the swing states, mm-hmm. which have Republican-controlled state legislatures, trying to guarantee that no matter what the actual vote is, that they're going to return Republican electors yep. uh, to the... Uh, to Washington for January 6th, 2025.
1: And so your argument here, you mentioned, you know, serving as poll workers, uh, you write in the op-ed getting involved in the campaigns of pro-democracy candidates for governors and secretaries of states, running for the many thousands of local electoral administration positions across the country. And by the way, that's exactly what folks are doing on the right. I, I mean, all over the country at this point. I mean, do, do you see any evidence that we're seeing a similar movement on the non-right? When I say non-right, I don't necessarily mean Democrats alone, but really anyone who might oppose illiberal democracy. Do, do you see any evidence of, of such a movement on the non-right? And, and w- will that be enough to stop where we could be going here?
3: Well, I don't know whether it's gonna be enough, but there definitely are people who are working on this uh intensively and you know, there's a lot of individual citizens who are going and putting their name forward and running for these a lot of a lot of these positions are not hard to get elected for. I mean they're not usually at least historically have not been in high demand, they're not expensive mm-hmm. to run for. Um and so, you know, if you're in uh you know um you know, a town in Wisconsin or Arizona mm-hmm. or North Carolina and you wanna be the election administrator for your for your uh county or your uh, or your precinct—that's uh, something that you almost certainly can do, and there probably won't be that much opposition to you wanting to do it. It's considered more like a—it's historically been considered something more like a civic service job mm-hmm. rather than uh... you know—rather than a political job per se, as it should be, right? I mean, mm-hmm. election administration is basically a technical subject, or at least it should be. It shouldn't be a political subject, mm-hmm. um, and so I think there are lots of opportunities for people to, to get involved in politics at this way. And, you know, just ensure that the process is as as, uh, as as fair and standardized as possible. You know, some election workers and poll workers are feeling pretty intimidated at this point. There are you know lots of reports from all over the country mm-hmm. of people feeling slightly scared uh, by you know people showing up, yelling at them, people marching around, uh, brandishing arms in ways that people find intimidating. And so you know there are there are threats to this. Um, there is, you know, organizations like Protect Democracy are trying to put into place people who are committed to, you know, um, rational and legal administrative practices of elections. And so I think that there is an effort to do this. But right now, you know, led by Steve Bannon, as a matter of fact, there is an absolute movement on the right yep. to try to put into place partisan hacks in these positions. And the only reason why they would do that is because they think, I presume, that having those people in place. Uh, in the close election, could make a real difference for which votes get counted, which votes get discarded.
1: i'm uh, i'm I'm short on time here, uh, so very quickly, uh, Nils, you know, I spoke uh, on the show a bit earlier this week how I literally go to sleep at night uh, before those nightmares about oncoming trains and democracy. But I literally uh, game out the many ways that committed Republicans, if they are simply willing to act, you know, collectively in bad faith, and I believe they have proven themselves willing to do so could steal the next presidential election before our very eyes via gaming of the Electoral College, and that there is currently pretty much nothing that Democrats could do to stop them. The U.S. Supreme Court could not be uh, counted on as a backstop. You know, the the system, the Constitution, the Electoral uh, Count Act of 1889, whatever it is, uh, the way that's currently structured pretty much allows a party acting in bad faith to steal a presidential election as I see it. That is my nightmare, Nils Gilman. And I don't know if that's what you guys at the Transition Integrity Project came up with, but, but do you share that particular nightmare that that could be pulled off just that easily amongst a group of bad faith operators?
3: Yeah, no, that, that I, I am very much concerned that that could take place, for sure. Um, I think that... It'll be hard to do if there's a big landslide victory. Um, the reason why ultimately Trump failed in uh, you know twenty twenty and early twenty twenty one is because you know it wasn 't that close of an election you know Biden it was the you know fifteenth closest election out of uh, out of sixty or fifty nine elections presidential mm-hmm. elections that we 've had but if we have a really close election that comes down to just a couple of states and a couple of swing precincts in a couple of those states in those, in, the, in those states and if those swing precincts are controlled by you know, Republicans who are willing to make partisan decisions in the face of, you know, the actual Mm votes. yeah, you could definitely see something like that happen. I mean, I think the solution to this, there's only one solution ultimately. The electoral, you know, the Democrats Mm -hmm. and people who are, I don't even think it's a partisan issue, people who believe in democracy as a process need to turn out in droves. They need to do this in the 2022 midterms. They need to do this in the 2024 presidential election. And they need to recognize that Our democratic practices are upstream from policy disagreements. There may be people whose policies you don't like, but if those people believe in democracy, you need to vote for them over the people who don't believe in democracy Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And we need to turn out. That is the only ultimate solution. We must win elections.
1: I am quite worried that your ultimate solution there is still not enough, that even a, a blowout election, if you're dealing with people in bad faith, uh, I don't know that they care how uh, you know how much one party over another may have won. If they decide to declare the uh, the independent legislature doctrine means we get to decide who the slate of electors will be, that they will simply go ahead and decide it. I hope I am terribly wrong about that, but that is my worst nightmare. Uh, Nils Gilman, uh, do, do you have plans, by the way, to reconvene your? Bipartisan Transition Integrity Project before the 2024 presidential election? And by the way, should that project be convening right now rather than waiting until 2024 this time?
3: Well, I think, as I said, I I think that the questions that matter most uh, for the 2022 midterm elections are mostly state and local. And there's a lot of people working on projects at the state and local level. We'll see how things turn out after the next election, what the partisan makeup of, of, of Congress is, Who's in control of various kinds of state legislatures that might be swing states that could do this kind of uh, ballot nullification that you're talking about? I think if we look at the landscape uh, after the midterms um, and after the new, you know, there's going to be redistricting and there's going to be new elections, we're going to see what the composition of Congress is. I think it's very possible we may do something like reconvene the Transition Integrity Project mm-hmm. to think about the ways in which. 2024 could be corrupted. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think we got to cross that bridge when
1: we get to it. Yeah, you'll be reconvening. Nils Gilman, vice president of programs at Berggruen Institute, co-founder of the Transition Integrity Project. Uh, You can find him on the Twitters at Nils underscore Gilman. And of course, you can find Berggruen at bergruen.org. That's a tough spell, but it's B-E-R-G-G-R-U-E-N dot org. Dr. Gilman, always great speaking with you, my friend. I uh, look forward to it sort of again in the near future. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you. Okay, uh, Desi Doyen, we... uh, (laughs) Well, hopefully he
2: understands it. When you say you sort of look forward to it, that, that, you know, we're hoping for some good news, maybe, eventually. Yeah,
1: how about some good news, Berggruen Institute? Got something good to tell us? We'll have (laughs) you on for that.
2: But, you know, I'm I'm glad that he spells out in his op-ed and uh, in this interview about the many ways that people can get involved at the state and local level to help protect democracy, because democracy begins at home.
1: Yeah, and they won't get involved unless they understand the stakes, which yes. is why we try to explain this is not a drill, people. This is not a drill. Uh, even after what happened uh, on January 6th, you, you would think people would get that. I'm still not sure that they do. I'm still not sure that they understand um how dangerous this point is that yes. we are looking forward to now. and
2: it's really important to talk about it because, you know, if you are somebody who is involved and engaged in politics and aware of the facts and the truth and how to ensure what you're looking at is verifiable independently, then share that information with your friends and family because they may not know where we are right now and how dangerous this is.
1: That said... uh Uh, uh, on our uh, previous broadcast, Des, we had to push off your Green News report because (laughs) (laughs) we had so much to cover uh, on the anniversary special coverage uh, of uh, January 6th. So let's not let that happen again. Okay, let's get to a quick break. Make sure we have time for Desi Doyen and her latest Green News report. And it is a fine one, I'm sure. Uh, That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. world, once again, is uh, melting for Desi Doyen. Uh, But a a quick uh, note here. His name is Charles Fried. Not Charles Fried. Charles Fried, Ronald Reagan's uh, solicitor general who we uh, played there at the top of the previous segment speaking about the demons of hell That he saw released in 1935 in Prague and that he fears are being uh, released again here that he's very scared about in our own country. Now, I should have known, by the way, that it's Charles Fried because he spells it F.R.I.E.D., Just the way I spell Friedman, (laughs) F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, you would think I would know better. Anyway, there you go, Charles Fried. Okay, let's get to it, our latest Green News report. Germany is saying goodbye to nuclear
2: power. Germany shuts down half of its last remaining nuclear power plants. Trump's EPA chief and coal lobbyist tapped for Virginia's top environmental post. Oi! Plus, this is the first passenger ferry in the world powered entirely by hydrogen fuel cells. San Francisco gets the world's first clean hydrogen ferry.
1: Not one joke about San Francisco and ferries straight ahead from bradblog.com i'm brad friedman
2: and i'm desi doyan
1: stand by for six minutes of independent green news politics analysis and snarky comment
2: maybe we could afford well, to give glasses to senior citizens if we weren't raping the economy uh, with these arbitrary climate mandates
1: new year same bullshit from fox news this is your green news report Okay, Desi Doyen, some very good news out of Germany. Let's start there today.
2: Well, it depends on who you ask. Germany has shut down three of its last six nuclear power plants, with the rest set to close by the end of this year. It's part of a long-planned phase-out of nuclear power in Germany, which accelerated after the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan. The closures are controversial, as Europe is currently experiencing an energy supply crunch, some climate scientists urge Germany to close fossil fuel plants first, before zero emissions nuclear plants, because the country's polluting coal and natural gas plants are still operating. Here's German university professor Simon Friedrich on Al Jazeera. Germany should definitely not
3: close its nuclear plants because nuclear energy is such an environmentally benign energy source that can help, nuclear, that can help Germany so much with decarbonization in the future with providing a stable source of energy.
1: Nuclear energy is a benign energy
2: source? He is talking about decarbonization and cutting Germany's emissions, which, you know, existing nuclear plants are emissions-free. However, the radioactive waste from Germany's nuclear plants will remain in storage for decades because there is still no permanent disposal site anywhere in the world. And Germany has
1: some pretty strict rules on that.
2: The German law we are required to uh, identify a location for a nuclear depository That is expected to be safe for one million years. Well, that
1: should be easy.
2: In California, state investigators have concluded that power lines owned by utility giant PG&E were responsible for igniting last year's massive Dixie Fire, the second largest wildfire in state history. The Dixie Fire is one of several destructive and deadly fires ignited by PG&E's equipment in recent years. Late last year, PG&E said it will begin burying some power lines over the next decade. Take
1: your time.
2: In Virginia, the state's new Republican governor-elect Glenn Youngkin has appointed Donald Trump's former EPA administrator, the coal lobbyist Andrew Mm. Wheeler, to head the state's Department of Natural Resources. Mm. During the Trump administration, Wheeler dismantled Obama-era climate and environmental rules and rolled back pollution standards for clean air, clean water, power plants, cars, and more. Hey,
1: people, have we mentioned lately that elections matter.
2: But some good news for Virginia. Construction of six new solar plants will begin soon on former coal mining land that is being repurposed to generate renewable energy. The solar plants are among the first such projects in the United States to move forward in the coal fields of the central Appalachian Mountains. At
1: least until Governor Youngkin and Andrew Wheeler cancel them.
2: More good news. The world's first zero-emissions ferry is about to go into service in San Francisco Bay. It replaces dirty, polluting diesel fuel with hydrogen that emits only water vapor. But there is a catch. Hydrogen is a promising replacement for some fossil fuel applications, but only if it is sourced from renewable energy rather than natural gas. And Environmental Defense Fund Director Amanda Leland told CBS News that avoiding leaks at all stages of hydrogen production Production and use is crucial.
1: There's a lot of hope and promise around it. But in order for it to really move forward, in order for the climate to be protected, we need to understand what the, the leak potential really is.
2: And finally, this week, Toyota, the world's biggest car maker, says it will pour $35 billion into its shift to electric vehicles to directly challenge Tesla's EV industry dominance. On Wednesday, Chevrolet unveiled the all new, all electric version of its popular Silverado pickup with a battery range of about 400 miles. 400 miles? Yeah, and wow. it's it's intended to compete directly with Ford Motor Company's all-electric Ford F-150 Lightning. Nice. And Ford announced that it is doubling its production of the Lightning, again, due to high demand. Wow.
1: I'm calling it 2022, the year of the electric vehicle. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, Apple, Google, or Amazon Podcasts. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report.
0: I want to hear you call my own nickname and ride right until we run out of love.
1: I want to take a ride. The pickup truck oh, baby In yes. my electric pickup truck
2: <laughs> We're going to have to change All those country songs
1: Yeah, well, anyway we got to ride the hell out of here In our electric pickup truck Though Indeed. there's uh, s- some more extreme weather Headed our way Or
2: least- Yes, it's actually hitting right now and-, and throughout the weekend It's the wintertime, folks Extreme weather is going to happen In uh, Washington State There's some flooding on Interstate 5 In Washington, D.C. There's snowstorms So please be prepared For more frequent experiences extreme weather events make sure you have what you need in case you get stranded in your car
1: don't you want to say listen to officials because you listen always to
2: officials if they say stay home if you can at all help it please stay home
1: because desi doyan believes in bowing down to the man <laughs> to the government listening to whatever they tell you to do
2: now please stay safe uh, you know don't drive through flooded roadways and if you can help it at all please don't go out during extreme weather there you go that's all
1: yeah And listen to those officials, says Desi. All right, we got to go. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Dr. Nils Gilman of the Berggruen Institute, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Hey, while you're there, please hit one of those donate buttons or feel free to go straight to bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the TheBradBlog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh,
2: baby,